Sheriff James R. Barton died game. Even his killers, a gang of California cutthroats, would grant him that. The sheriff was a brave man. Sure, he'd given up David Brown to a lynch mob, but that was more a matter of calculation than courage. Was a murderous psychopath like Davy Brown really worth shedding the blood of solid citizens over? Yeah, I didn't think so. Barton was a popular sheriff. Popular enough that when he decided that retiring to his ranch and his walnut groves wasn't all that satisfying, he outpolled the broad Democrat ticket in a tense pre-Civil War election where many Californios voted with the new anti-slavery Republican Party and he handily won election to another term in office. In the turbulent Los Angeles of the 1850s, voters tended to overlook a few sketchy actions, like dragging your native concubine around by her hair and framing her pissed off kin for horse theft. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. The ambush slaying of Sheriff James R. Barton and three of his deputies in January of 1857 was the worst act of violence against law enforcement in Los Angeles history all the way up until the Newhall incident of 1970 when four highway patrolmen were gunned down during a traffic stop north of the city. The Barton killing led to a massive manhunt and an orgy of vigilante violence. Here's how it went down. The sheriff, temporarily retired in 1854, was living on his new 170-acre Barton Ranch east of Los Angeles with a young Cupeño Indian woman named Maria del Espiritu Santo. She bore him a son in the spring of 1854. As John Mac Farragher notes, a gentleman farmer living in common-law marriage with an Indian girl and their child was not uncommon in Southern California during those years. Not everything was happy in the arrangement, however. Maria left Barton and returned to her mother's people in a rancheria on the east side of the Los Angeles River. Barton set out to bring her back by force, and he apparently grabbed her by the hair of her head and set about dragging her along when he was accosted by Andres Fuentes, described as a young half-breed, who had a reputation for being quick with a knife. Fuentes may have been a relative of Maria. It's not uh, definitive in the parish records, but uh, it's entirely likely that he was kin to her. So uh, he accosted Barton. Barton backed off. But a couple of days later, Fuentes was arrested for horse theft, and he was tried and sent off in manacles to San Quentin Prison. Barton, who clearly had the pull to hang a frame on the young Indian, saw him off on the stagecoach, and Fuentes reportedly told him, You put this job on me. I will return and kill you. Maria and James reconciled, and she returned to Barton Ranch. Barton recognized their son as his legal progeny and heir. We don't know if that had been what they were fighting over and what the, their breakup was about, but it might well have been. 
In any case, the new young Barton would inherit sooner than anyone might have thought. Barton was back in office after the 1856 election just in time to catch a pretty tough case. A gang of California banditos led by Pancho Daniel had made a spectacular prison break at San Quentin. They had hijacked a boat in their manacles and and sailed out into the San Francisco Bay despite taking heavy gunfire from the, the prison guards. They made it across to the East Bay and found someone to cut off their shackles and headed south. And with a sharp sense of badass poetry, they named the new gang Las Manias, the Manacles. So they headed south, and along the way, they picked up a young man who had recently completed a two-year stint for horse theft at San Quentin. Yes, you're right. His name was Andres Fuentes. He told Daniel he'd join the gang on one condition, that they'd help him kill Sheriff Jim Barton of Los Angeles. Fuentes wasn't the only mania with vengeance on his mind. The dashing young Juan Flores wanted payback on a man named Garnet Hardy, who had testified against him at his horse theft trial. Flores was a flashier hombre than the nondescript Pancho Daniel, and he liked to make an impression. Our favorite chronicler, the Los Angeles Ranger, Horace Bell, recalls him as a dark-complexioned fellow of medium height, slim, lithe, and graceful, a most beautiful figure in the Fandango or on horseback. The gang picked up Hardy's trail, headed down to San Juan Capistrano, about 60 miles southeast of Los Angeles, with a load of, of goods. Flores saddled up his beautiful self, and the gang rode out. Hardy, though, pulled off the road and camped without a fire that night, so the gang missed him and and rode on by, which was lucky for Hardy. When Las Manias rode into San Juan Capistrano, they didn't find Hardy, but they found plenty of watering holes, so they got good and drunk. Hardy pulled into town, and someone told him that some bad hombres were looking for him, and he figured out who that must be. He sent a messenger to warn his brothers in Los Angeles, ditched his wagon, and got the hell out of there, taking the long way around back home to avoid pursuit. When Flores, doubtless hungover, found out that Hardy had been and gone, he was enraged. He and Las Manias started plundering the stores of San Juan Capistrano, and when a German merchant named George Flugart tried to keep the gang out of his grocery store, they burst in and shot him dead. Alfred Hardy received his brother's warning message and went straight to Sheriff Barton in Los Angeles, and Barton immediately formed a posse consisting of Deputy Frank Alexander, Constables William Little and Alfred Hardy, and Hardy's blacksmith friend Charles Baker, and a Frenchman who had worked in the country the posse would have to traverse and would act as a guide. Just as a note, San Juan Capistrano now lies in Orange County, 
but Orange County didn't exist then, so Barton's jurisdiction was huge. Andres Fuentes had remained in Los Angeles when Las Manias rode south of San Juan, and he saw the posse preparing to depart. So he knew where they were headed and their direction of travel. The Barton posse rode through the night and bivouacked at the Rancho Santiago de Santa Ana, where the vaqueros warned him uh, that Las Manias were numerous and well-armed, and Barton being a tough guy, shrugged off the warning. On the morning of Friday, January 23rd, which was one of those warm, dry, Southern California winter days, they rode out to their doom. The posse got strung out along the trail through the San Joaquin Hills. And when a rider climbed out of a ravine several hundred yards ahead and rode away from them, Constables Little and Baker along with the French guide, followed. And any student of frontier partisan combat knows what happened next. Over and over and over again in frontier partisan history, men who should have known better ran into ambushes following a decoy. My sense of it is that the hunting instinct just gets up, and the chase is on, and even experienced men just behave heedlessly and run headlong into an ambush, and that's exactly what happened here. A dozen men on horseback burst from the brush, charging down on the lawmen and firing with shotguns and revolvers. Now, these shotguns were muzzle-loading, black powder-firing shotguns, and they were good for two shots, and then they'd be slung or cast aside. The revolvers of the day were cap-and-ball six-shooters, most likely 36 caliber Navy Colts and maybe some heavy 44 caliber Dragoons. Most men on the frontier who packed carried more than one pistol, and they often carried preloaded cylinders that could be swapped out relatively quickly rather than loading each chamber with powder, wad, and a ball. Um, a black powder era version of a speed loader. John Mac Farragher, in his book Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles, describes an intense firefight. There is one Flores, boys, shouted Francois. There are the ladrones. Fire, fire! And then, wheeling his horse, the Frenchman tore off in the opposite direction. Run for your lives, boys! Little and Baker did not panic, but calmly drew their revolvers and got off several rounds before both of them were hit. Baker took a ball to the forehead and fell dead. Little was wounded in the stomach. He tumbled to the ground, crawled into a gully, and commenced firing with a second revolver, as Barton and the other three men came charging up. The posse was outnumbered two or three to one, but in the first exchange three Manias were hit and killed. Pancho Daniel saw Barton and bore down on him. We have got you now, Don Santiago, God damn you, he shouted. And I reckon I've got you too, Barton shouted back. According to Frank Alexander, the two men fired at the same instant. Daniel was hit in the leg, Barton's shot penetrating the top of his leather boot and shattering the bone, a serious, though not a life-threatening wound. 
But Daniel's shot was decisive, tearing into Barton's chest, a mortal blow. He fell hard, breaking his left arm. Barton quickly pulled a second revolver from his belt and continued firing. Hardy and Alexander saw him go down. Hardy had lost his pistol in the melee and was defenseless. He signaled to Alexander and suddenly the two men retreated at full speed. They were pursued by several Manias all the way back to El Refugio, but escaped with their lives. Their flight was made possible by Barton and Little, who kept the rest of the gang occupied for several critical minutes. Eventually, Little stopped firing from the gully. A Sonoraño named Juan Catabo crept over and peered in. Little was reloading his revolver with powder cap and ball. Catabo shot him dead. Barton fought like a lion, one member of the gang later reported, and kept the whole gang at bay by his terrible defiance. They circled him at a safe distance until he had finally emptied his revolver. Then, Andres Fuentes dismounted and slowly advanced toward him on foot. Barton raised himself on his left elbow and hurled his empty revolver at the outlaw. Now kill me, goddamn you, he said. According to Horace Bell, who had it from the shooter himself, Fuentes walked up to Barton and fired point-blank at his face. Thus ended the massacre, wrote Bell. Taking the arms, equipment, and horses of the murdered gringos, the murderers returned to San Juan in triumph. The slaying of Sheriff Barton and his posse members sent an electric shock of fear and rage throughout the population of Los Angeles. Anglos feared that the incident was a rebellion, a revolution, a harbinger of race war where Californios would rise up and slaughter the Anglo colonizers. Ironically, some Latter-day historians also look at the incident and see uh, a quasi-revolutionary action by quote-unquote social bandits. We'll come back to that. Fear as well as anger must have driven some of the actions that occurred in the wake of the murders after the bodies of the Barton posse were retrieved and buried in Los Angeles. Barton's friend and former undersheriff, William Osborne, seems to have completely lost his shit over the killings. He told his young son, I am going away, and I may never come back again. The crime must be avenged. Farragher describes Osborne's vengeance. On the morning of January 29, 1857, some days after Barton's death, Osborne and a party of Americans were patrolling the roads not far from Mission San Gabriel when they came upon two mounted men who roused their suspicions. When confronted, the pair sped off at a gallop, the Americans in hot pursuit. In a running gunfight, one of the men, a Mexican later identified as Jose Santos, received a mortal wound. The other, a Californio named Miguel Soto, jumped from his horse and plunged into a cienega, or marsh, attempting to hide among the tules. The Americans burned him out, and one of the King brothers from the Monte brought him down with a rifle shot. The body was dragged out, and a quick search of the man's pockets produced a Masonic ring thought to belong to Sheriff Barton. The Americans, 10 or 15 men from San Gabriel and the Monte, reacted like angry wasps from a disturbed nest. Assuming that Santos and Soto were somehow connected with the local California community, 
They swarmed through the neighborhoods surrounding the mission, rousting residents from their homes and driving them at gunpoint to a small plaza in front of the mission, where they were forced to witness a terrifying spectacle orchestrated by William Osborne. The body of one of the dead men was brought up in a carreta and dumped on the ground. An eyewitness described what happened next. Osborne came forward, knife in hand, rolled up his sleeves, and with one hand took the dead man's head by its long hair, cut it from the body, and tossed it aside, thrust his dagger into the heart of the corpse, then kicked the head into the midst of the crowd as they shouted and cheered. There was a spate of hangings and shootings conducted by Anglo vigilantes. The vigilantes seemed to have gone after known criminals or, or near-de-wells, but many of their victims had no connection to Las Manias. Vigilante violence like this was just a kind of reflex in Southern California in the 1850s. It has to be noted, however, that vigilante action was not solely an Anglo versus California proposition. And it wasn't necessarily racial or racist in its origins. When word of the Barton killings hit, Andres Pico, who had effectively commanded Lancers in the Mexican-American War of 1846-48, turned out a contingent of 51 Lancers to help run down Las Manias. And Pico's form of justice could be as rough as anyone's. Pico's men, joined by a contingent of hard men, almost all Southerners from the ranching country of El Monte, cornered several members of the gang, including Juan Flores, in the Santa Ana Mountains on a piece of high ground that's known today as Flores Peak. You may recall the name of Tomas Sanchez from the previous podcast on the murder of John Raines. He was the sheriff of Los Angeles when that caper went down. Sanchez filled out his badass card in the assault on Las Manias' stronghold, as did a Monty boy named Bethel Coopwood. John Bosenecker describes the moment in his wonderful book, Gold Dust and Gunsmoke, Tales of Gold Rush Outlaws, Gunfighters, Lawmen, and Vigilantes. Juan Flores and his compadres took cover, emerging only briefly to fire on the posse, and then ducked back behind the rocks and brush. The two posses held a hurried discussion. Most believed it would be certain death to charge up the slope, and that the best course of action would be to surround the ridge and starve the bandits out. In the midst of the debate, Tomas Sanchez swung down from his saddle, pulled off his spurs, and announced, I am ready to ascend the mountain even if but one man will follow me. This was a challenge, and Bethel Coopwood promptly accepted it. He had recently injured his leg, but had thrown away his crutch to join the manhunt. He replied dramatically, Though I am lame, you will not be ahead of me. The two set off up the mountainside and were quickly joined by six of the posse. As they crawled up, they expected an ambush at every moment, but surprisingly not a shot was fired. Flores and his men retreated to the summit and found out that they were caught in a trap. The opposite side of the ridge was a perpendicular drop, 200 feet straight down. Flores acted quickly. As the posse men crept toward them, the outlaws collected their riatas and knotted them together. 
Flores and two others slid their horses about 50 feet down to a rock shelf. Here, Flores abandoned his horse, made one end of the rope fast, and carefully lowered himself down that cliff. Partway down, he swung into the rock wall, and the hammer of his revolver struck the rocks and discharged, wounding him in the arm. But he was desperate to escape and ignored the pain. Jesus Espinosa and Leonardo Lopez followed him down. Then the desperados fled on foot westward through the mountains. I've posted a photograph of Flores Peak at FrontierPartisans.com in the, uh, the blog post announcing uh, the posting of this podcast, and it is just as, as Bolsonecker describes it, and you can see this sheer drop at the, uh, the back of the summit. Bosenecker again. Tomas Sanchez, peering over the cliff at the dangling rope, saw that in the middle it had either been broken or deliberately cut by the outlaws. Below it was a growth of scrub oak, which might break a man's fall. But as far as the manhunters knew, the brush might also hold their prey, waiting in ambush. The men on the summit had only one riata, which was quickly tied to the end of the bandit's rope. Even then it fell twenty feet short. Tomas Sanchez did not hesitate. With his six-shooter shoved into his belt and his bowie knife clenched in his teeth, he seized the rope and began to lower himself. The rope swayed precariously, alternatingly swinging him out over the yawning chasm and slamming him down into the cliff. Finally, he reached the end of the rope, let go, and plummeted down into the brush, uninjured. Others soon followed him, and they set off on foot after the escaping killers. But the only trace of the three outlaws was a broken gun that they had left in their flight. So Juan Flores had made his getaway, but he didn't get far before the Monty boys captured him. They didn't hold him long, though. While the Monty boys slept, worn out from the manhunt, Flores managed to escape. When Andres Pico heard that their quarry had flown, he was pissed. He immediately ordered that two bandits, who had been captured and were in his custody, be strung up to the nearest tree. Then he ordered his men to cut off their ears. Pico didn't give up anything when it came to rough frontier justice. Flores would ultimately be recaptured as he tried to make his way north out of the Los Angeles basin. He was put in jail where he stayed for a week before an enormous mob took him into their custody marched him out and hanged him, using the riata of one of the men killed in the Barton ambush. A poetic flourish. It was an ugly one, though. The riata was short, and Flores twitched and flailed and choked. He slipped his bonds and reached a hand up trying to pull away the noose. It took him a really long time to die. Pancho Daniel escaped the dragnet and headed north to San Jose, but lawmen there caught him, actually hiding out in a haystack, and arrested him and extradited him to Los Angeles, where he was slated to stand trial. And the the temper of the Angelinos had, had moderated somewhat by the time Daniel was caught, and it seemed like they were going to allow his trial to go forward. But Daniel had a good lawyer, he used every 
procedural trick in the book to delay the trial and then to seek a change of venue due to a, a prejudiced jury pool. And that really strained the patience of the mob who were afraid that uh, there might be a change of venue and that, that Daniel might be acquitted. So they finally broke Daniel out of jail and strung him up too. Andres Fuentes escaped to Baja, California, where he would again run foul of the law and he was executed in Baja by firing squad in 1860. The killing of Sheriff Barton and the subsequent manhunt and vigilante spree comprised one of the bloodiest episodes in a bloody time and place. There were some exceptional aspects to the case, but it would be a mistake to view it as an Anglo versus California confrontation, much less a quasi-revolutionary event. John Bosenecker shoots down the notion that the Daniel Flores gang were social bandits, offering some kind of resistance to Anglo occupation. In recent years, writers and researchers have held up Hispanic outlaws of the gold rush as revolutionaries or social bandits who struck out against Anglo injustice. Such assertions distort the truth. While it cannot be denied that many Hispanic outlaws had been mistreated by Anglos, and although these outlaws were admired by the oppressed underclass, which included the poorest of the Californios and Mexicans, it is unscholarly and irresponsible to label them as heroes today simply because a minority of Californians saw them as such a century ago. And what these social bandits were rebelling against by slaughtering unarmed innocent Anglos and Hispanics is difficult to fathom. Major Horace Bell wrote in that in the Hispanic community of that era, the line of demarcation between rebel and robber, pillager and patriot was dimly defined. But a close look at the careers of Juan Flores and Pio Linares, as well as those of Solomon Pico and Joaquin Murrieta, makes that blurry line come into much sharper focus. The evidence is clear that they were pillagers, not patriots. One of the most famous of all the California bandits ran to the end of his trail in Los Angeles at a little adobe house not far from what is now the Sunset Strip. So we'll take up the tale of Tiburcio Vasquez in the final episode of the series, Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles. I want to thank all of you for gathering around this electronic campfire to swap tales of mayhem and murder in frontier Los Angeles. This has been a fun series to put together, and I am looking forward to, to wrapping it up with the, the legendary Tiburcio Vasquez. Um, I would highly recommend, if you're interested in this topic, picking up uh, both of the books that, uh, that I drew from for this podcast episode, John MacFarger's Eternity Street, Violence and Justice in Frontier Los Angeles, and John Bosnecker's Gold Dust and Gunsmoke, Tales of Gold Rush Outlaws, Gunfighters, Lawmen, and Vigilantes. There are so many stories to be told. I mean, I could probably do a year's worth of podcasts just on this, this Los Angeles history, which is 
quite fascinating. And if you expand it to California at large during the gold rush, there's just that many more tales to tell. It was the wildest of the Wild West, without a doubt. Also want to thank the patrons who uh, make this podcast possible. That's Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfeger. If you're interested in joining that illustrious posse, there's a, a link to the Patreon page in the show notes. I promise we won't expect you to climb down a knotted riata, um, swinging out over a cliff and jumping into a patch of scrub oak, but you can if you want to. Uh, at any rate, I thank all of the patrons and, and all of you for listening, and we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>